Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, From its basketball team to its signature sunshine, Miami always brings the heat. But now that extreme heat is the norm, the city has hired a first-of-its-kind chief heat officer. And millions rely on the air conditioners to help us beat the heat, but both air conditioners and refrigerators chill with the use of a super pollutant. Plus, will rising tides force the coastal residents of Cape Cod to move inland? It's our environmental roundtable. Later in the show, George Floyd's murder re-traumatized Black Americans already dealing with an epidemic of racial violence. And as the anniversary of George Floyd's death nears, mental health experts worry the psychic damage suffered by young African Americans is linked to an increase in suicides. But first, joining me remotely, Beth Daly, editor and general manager of The Conversation U.S. Hello, Beth. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm glad to have you. Cabal Eames, legislative manager at the Better Future Project, a Massachusetts-based grassroots climate action organization. Hi, Cabal. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And Dr. Aaron Bernstein, interim director of the Center for Climate, Health, and the Global Environment at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, a pediatrician at Boston Children's Hospital and an assistant professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. Hello, Dr. Bernstein. Delighted to be back with you and my fellow panelists, Kelly. Absolutely. Well, let's just dive right into uh, what I think is a very interesting development in Miami. Miami has appointed a chief heat officer. And if that sounds odd to a lot of people, you want to consider that heat, because of the extreme heat caused by climate change, has become a real issue for many cities. Let's first take a listen to Jane Gilbert, who was named Miami-Dade County's chief heat officer, talking about her goals for climate action. Over the next six to 10 months, our goal is to be able to develop a cohesive heat action plan to best serve and protect the lives and livelihoods of our community. Dr. Bernstein, so what do you think about this development of having somebody who just formally concentrates on what the heat is doing, the extreme heat is doing uh, relative to climate change? It's a watershed moment, Callie. Today, we know that heat is responsible for more deaths in the United States than all other natural disasters combined. So we have a challenge on our hands. And I think the position of Miami and 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 actually there have been positions created in places like Athens and, and Freetown and Liberia are, are, are this recognition that, that we're seeing heat in, in ways that are completely unprecedented. And, and as with so many other environmental concerns, heat 
is is not you know merely an issue of for places where it's been hot. We in Boston are actually in many ways more vulnerable than Miami. It's going to be in the 90s in May in Boston this year. That's really hot. We know the first heat waves are the most risky, and we know that particularly Black Americans, Latinx Americans, and poor Americans live in the parts of cities that are hottest because, as a study that came out this week uh, showed, they have communities that have far less green space. So there are climate issues here, there are equity issues here, and there are, of course, health health concerns as well. Um, Beth, this watershed moment, as uh, Dr. Bernstein has described, uh, may be something that other places in the U.S. take up. Do you see a, a more comfort uh, with city organizers thinking about formalizing a role like this? I think it's really important. You can't fix something that you don't name. And it really has been a silent killer. Like Dr. Bernstein said, um, heat kills all the time. And we accepted it when it was not in the throes of climate change as sort of a unusual anomaly. But clearly that's changing. I think we're going to need a lot more cities probably doing something like this, not only to address it head on, but to really raise its profile that, you know, Heat kills. And I think we're going to see a lot more cities doing exactly what Miami has done. Uh, Cabell, one of the things I think is interesting is that the chief heat officer, Jane Gilbert, is somebody who's done sustainability and climate resilient work, as well as urban community development work. So this is somebody who really knows the city or cities and the way that they operate, as well as taking a look at this important issue. Yeah, and I would add, we actually have something similar happening here in Massachusetts. There's an organization called CREW, and uh, which stands for Communities Responding to Extreme Weather. And they have over 65 hubs across the United States, but they also have several here in Massachusetts. And they are tackling it in a way that is not just about, you know, it's going to be 90 in May. What are we going to do? Where are people going to go? Most people don't have air conditioners and so forth. But also the disability issue here that has been predominant for decades. You know, in the South, when my mother and I was living there with my mother and she had multiple sclerosis, every summer we would look out for the other people in her community because people with MS are at risk for having a stroke whenever it gets above 90 degrees, no matter what. So, you know, this has been something that communities have been already looking out for each other for. It's just never been at this scale. And so, you know, I really am thankful that it is at this scale. Obviously we need it, but it has been happening and is happening um, right here in Massachusetts. Okay. Let's move on to something that happened here around in our area that's made national news uh, for good reason, and that's the feds giving final approval to Vineyard Wind. This is a big deal. Um, There was a hint that it might happen uh, once President Biden took office, uh, but this project was almost dead before under the former administration. There's a lot going on with the approval. Um, That doesn't mean that all the opposition has gone away, Beth. But this is pretty important as something that uh, is moving in the direction of looking at alternative energy. This is gigantic. I mean, it is, we're talking 853 foot tall, like as tall as the Eiffel Tower uh, turbines, 15 miles offshore on Martha's Vineyard, able to power 400 400,000 homes. It it is a game changer. And it's so closely tied to Biden's energy plan. 
I think what we're going to see right after this are more proposals on the table, and we're going to be playing catch up. We're going to start to catch up to Europe and others who have been ahead of us on this frontier. When I saw the, the news that the final permit had come through, I, 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 I couldn't have been more both stunned and excited because it means it's finally a reality after so, so many years. Cabell, is there any chance that the opposition that has not gone away somehow is able to knock the plans for this off track? And I should mention that um, as of now, the construction is due to start this year and the power that uh, Beth spoke of that would go to all those homes would happen in 2023. You know, they're really trying to work hard with like the fishing industry. So, you know, that's one that is going to be affected here. But, you know, to Beth's point, I mean, I know that Senator Pacheco has been screaming about the fact that Massachusetts could be the Saudi Arabia of wind and that we could actually have a surplus in this state if we would just green light some of these permits. So it is really important that we do have this partnership with the Biden administration, but it is up to states to kind of figure out all of these parameters. And we have the opportunity here to really show the nation how it's done because we have, um, you know, we've greenlit this massive amount of wind power that's gonna just pr- produce jobs and and really green our grids. It's it's a welcome development. Hey, Kylie, can I just add one thing to that? Like mm-hmm. I, I just, I totally agree with Kamal, but like the thing about it being 15 miles offshore, well, certainly there are constituencies like fishermen what 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 there isn't is that opposition that were the from the people who didn't want to look at wind farms. And I, I think that's really significant and worth saying. Like that is not there as as mm. strongly as it was when the Cape Wind project was proposed in Nantucket Sound. So just wanted anyway, to and, and and do you think that's because people sort of get it now that, you know, something has to happen to address all of the changes in our environment that are not good? No, actually, I don't. I actually just think that people don't don't see it. You know what I mean? Mm. If it's 15 miles offshore, you're not looking at it every day. I do think there's a little bit more acceptance. Certainly, people don't don't love turbines in their backyard or on their vantage point. We can argue that point, but it's just true in many ways. So you always have that opposition. But if it's out of sight, it might truly be out of mind. Um, Dr. Bernstein, you were talking about the Miami heat officer being a uh, almost revolutionary happening. Um, how do you consider the approval for the wind turbines? It's uh, long overdue. This is a long time coming. And, you know, the 800 megawatts that these turbines are going to make are enough to power power about 400,000 homes. So the big question is how quickly uh, these things can get put up and what kind of scale we can get. It turns out the offshore wind resources that are available to the United States are greatest off the coast of New England. And I think it's important to recognize that, that the electricity that these turbines produce isn't just energy without pollution. This is going to displace fossil fuel use in places like Ohio and Pennsylvania that do come to Massachusetts to give us electricity and that also kill us, right? So in the last year, and this is a a finding from research that was put out by some colleagues at the Chan School and at the University of Glasgow just a few months ago, the stunning reality is that in in the last few years, somewhere around 300,000 Americans have died too soon because of air pollution they've breathed from burning fossil fuels. That's almost, it's, it's more than half 
of the death toll from COVID happening every year because we're burning fossil fuels. Imagine, imagine if we understood that concern in the same light as we have COVID, how quickly we would move away from fossil fuels. It's stunning if, if only we were a little more selfish, if only we cared a little bit more about our own health, we would have given up on fossil fuels a long time ago. But again, so as I said, you know, it's, it's, it's a time has, uh, has come for sure. Mm. Let's take a listen to Vineyard Wind CEO Lars Peterson on his vision for offshore wind. You have extremely strong, consistent winds, you have shallow water, and you have a lot of people living along the coastline that would benefit from a transition from fossil fuels into renewable. And offshore wind is just a way of uh, building large-scale renewable projects out of sight. So, I mean, there you have it. Um, this is going to end up being, I, I suspect, a model for other places who are now con- thinking about building the same kind of uh, wind farm. So uh, Massachusetts may be leading in, in this way in the future. What say you, Dr. Bernstein? Do you expect that to happen? Well, I think, you know, we're not going to fix the nation's carbon problem in our state, but we have the advantage of, of being forward-looking. And whether, you know, anybody wants to think that climate change is a problem or not, the world has decided and science has shown that it is. And so the smart money is investing in the technologies that are solutions because that's where the entire global economy is going. So the extent that we can do these things in Massachusetts, develop the infrastructure, develop the economies, those become valuable exports to us. So it's a huge win for, for our state, for our business community, and, and perhaps most importantly, from where I sit, for the health of, of the children I care for, and particularly the children um, who are economically disadvantaged. Mm. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me remotely are Beth Daly of The Conversation U.S., Cabell Eames of The Better Future Project, and Dr. Aaron Bernstein of Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health. It's our environmental roundtable discussion. Now, we all talked about uh, electric cars, the competition from the United States trying to catch up with some European nations and hybrid cars and just trying to, you know, get back on track in terms of being competitive around this. And President Biden, again, has made it clear that, you know, he's all about it. Here he is pushing for American-made electric vehicles while visiting Ford's Michigan plant to try its new electric pickup truck. The future of the auto industry is electric. There's no turning back. Right now, China is leading in this race. Make no bones about it. It's a fact. And they think they're going to win. But I got news for them. They will not win this race. We can't let them. We have to move fast. And that's what you're doing here. Well, Beth, what do you think about uh, the big push with Ford and President Biden. I mean, hey, it's it's the way it's going and it's the way it should be going. Electric cars, particularly if that electricity is uh, powered by renewables, is is the future. There's some problems with that, which uh, Bill McKibben wrote about in The New Yorker recently, which is, you know, as they gain in popularity, the the charging stations sometimes haven't caught up to the, the number of people who need a charge sometimes. But I think Biden's on the right right track. Absolutely. Mm. Cabell. 
we do need to solve the charging station issue. Um, I know that there are there's multiple pieces of legislation in the Massachusetts State House to address this issue. There's technology in Germany that will deal with the issue of if you live in an apartment building, how do you charge your vehicle? How bad is it right now? Let me ask you that. Um, so how far behind are we on that on the charging stations? Extremely. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's 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 extreme. You can't. You really. I mean, it's a it's an issue that has got to be addressed. Um, I know that the Biden administration is committed to addressing it, and they're they're putting a ton of money in the infrastructure of charging stations. Until that is sorted out, well, we definitely have some issues there. So, Dr. Bernstein, even though there may be enthusiasm and Ford is pushing it and President Biden is pushing it, a simple thing like not having a charging station could slow this down quite a bit. Well, actually, Kelly, I I think that the issue is not the charging stations. Look, when people have electric cars, property owners are going to put charging stations in and charge money to charge. That's not we have the technology and it's easy to deploy. I don't I don't actually see a need to really give government funds to subsidize charging. That problem will happen through the private sector. The issue with electric vehicles, and and we've done research on this point, uh, looking at the transportation corridor of the East Coast, which is the most heavily trafficked, is where the electricity is going to come from. And right now, if we didn't address the grid, if we don't take fossil fuels out of the power plants that are providing electricity, we could make air quality worse by electrifying vehicles. And that, to me, is the real issue with the transition to electric vehicles, not the chargers. I think that's, frankly, a, a very small and, and, and probably not consequential issue. The issue is where are the electrons going to come from, which is why the approval of uh, vineyard wind is so critical and why the movement to non-fossil-based electricity sources out, you know, on land is critical as we make the transition to electric vehicles. And that problem, we need much more policy action on. Hmm. It's all connected. You know, every time we have a conversation, you, we, we all see how all of these things are connected. Nothing can stand alone in either moving forward or in causing problems to push progress back. It's all very connected, including here's a story that I, don't, I guess I wasn't paying attention to. There's a super pollutant in air conditioners and refrigerators. And the EPA is um, paying attention to it now. But wow, I had I, I don't know where I've been in and not understanding how dangerous this was. So how dangerous, Dr. Bernstein? Well, the story here is that the HFCs replaced these chemicals called the CFCs, which we all may remember were the ones that were targeted as the, the main culprits in the ozone hole. Um, and the good news is that the Montreal Accord, uh, which was responsible for phasing out the CFCs, it can also be used to phase out these HFCs, which are potentially 1% of the global greenhouse gas problem. And so, you know, every bit helps here. And so the removal of HFCs and the replacement with other gases that don't cause climate change could be a big win for the climate problem. Now, we need to be careful because there there's a huge growing demand for air conditioning, right? We know it's getting hotter (laughs) and and those air conditioners need gases and we need alternatives that are going to work and be cost effective, which the industry um, suggests we have, which is great. And we also, of course, need to be careful about, you know, these gases don't just disappear when you throw out a fridge or an air conditioner in a car or anything else. 
And so we need responsible management as well. So I, I think overall, it's a very, you know, it's clearly we need to get rid of these gases and have an opportunity to do so through an existing agreement. Um, I think there's a lot of other gases on the horizon that will hopefully be cost effective and functional. Uh, and, and so I, I think this is, this is probably a very good turn of events. So what do you think about the EPA's uh, new plan to phase out these bad gases over the next 15 years, Cabell? Well, I mean, they're doing so because they understand that there is a market out there that has been developing the alternatives. So, I mean, you know, it's 15 years is that's a little scary to me. That's kind of that's running the clock down. Um, but there all there are alternatives. Honeywell International has been developing alter- alternatives since the early 2000s. And there are several other companies that have been participating. So, you know, we're also going to have to get creative with tree canopies and green spaces and such to kind of counteract um, all of the heat that Dr. Bernstein was speaking to, because while cooling is definitely going to have an uptick, you know, there are more creative ways out there as well to kind of keep things cool. Beth, what do you think about this? And I note that um, all of these pollutants disproportionately harm Americans of color. You know, the effects of climate change, which basically HFCs are, hap- you know, they're simply gases that are very potent heat trappers that, as we know, disproportionately hurts communities of color in many, in many ways, because, you know, it's hot in apartment buildings, you have um, uh, everything from, you know, sea level rise, the normal effects of climate. So it, it, it does disproportionately affect it. But I think I think the bigger picture for, for the HFCs is that it's, it really has to be a global effort to phase it down. Um, I mean, one of the things that I was always so surprised about it, that CFCs are still being used in some places. So we, we really need to get those two chemical groups to sort of out of the picture completely. And that would really, really help with climate. Well, isn't it isn't it true that in general there's always a lag? And so to the point about the EPA taking 15 years to phase out this particular super pollutant seems to add to the lag. Yeah, it does. I mean, you know, I think there's a lot of uh, non-action by long time periods that happens in government. And I always worry about that, to Cobble's point. I think it's really, really an excellent point. I mean, we have 17 U.S. states have passed bans or restrictions to begin their own phase downs, you know. And the EPA is taking 15 years. Something seems off there to me. Hmm. Well, I'm sure we'll hear about it again. Here's something else we've heard about before. I know you all don't roll your eyes. But it comes up every year as we're heading into storm season. And we look at the Cape and we look at those houses sitting right there, you know, near the water. And we know the rising tides are coming. And so the question is, is it time? really, to, for these houses and these people to move away from the beach area? Well, just to be clear, Kelly, it's not just the sea level rise, it's the hurricane risk. So the science is showing that hurricanes, Atlantic hurricanes, are more likely to hit higher up on the coast. So, you know, we're not immune, we're already not immune in New England to hurricanes, but not only are the hurricanes getting stronger in the Atlantic, their tracks are moving northward. So the Cape is clearly at risk from erosion, from sea level rise. And, you know, this is a issue, the Cape is in this way, in terms of the question you ask, a microcosm for the world. I mean, what is the right thing to do when when the risk is so clear and yet people are attached to living by the coast? And and I think to me, it's one thing if you have a coastal property owner who, who you know, 
if they lose a house, it's tragic, but not catastrophe because they've got a lot of resources backing up versus families and communities that are, are not well off. And this is their only place to go. And those are the folks where we need engagement right now. No one in this country should be told they can't live where they want to live. The other piece, of course, is how much one might spend to try and shore up the coast. And that's happening a lot with, you know, two to three feet of coastal erosion a year in places on the Cape. There's a lot of efforts to try and do that. But again, how much are people going to want to pay to do that? So, you know, I think that people who want to stay, who are fully informed, that that's their right and, and choice. I think for communities that are particularly at risk and who are less economically well off, we need to be particularly engaged and working with them to make sure that, that they're able to make decisions that they see the most appropriate. Cabell? I couldn't agree more with that statement. We really have to in, engage with communities that are going to be impacted um, and discuss what they want. I know that municipals, um, select boards and alike are all trying to figure this out, particularly down in the Cape. I've been to several climate conferences where people, that are town administrators um, on the Cape, they, they come, they have questions, you know, they talk about their people suffering and uh, the rinse and repeat method is just not working and they don't know how to talk to their communities about moving them because it's just, it feels like the wrong thing to do. So, you know, while this is a reality, um, it's a reality that has to be figured out with caution um, and with support and compassion for people, because we're talking about their homes, their investments, um, you know, where they've raised their children. There's so much that's tied emotionally to where people live that we just can't just come in and say, you know, this is all going to be gone. You guys got to figure it out. We really have to work with these communities that are being impacted. Um, Beth, what would you say? So I actually have a different point of view. I mean, I think all those things are, are quite important, but look, money speaks. So from my perspective, we need a, a federal policy to really kick everyone into action. I mean, what, what you could see is flood insurance prices reflecting the true risk. So that's number one. The second thing you would have FEMA flood maps that actually address the, the potential for the, and the reality of what's gonna happen right now, flood maps still look back in the, in the past about floodplains, so you're never really caught up in the present. And lastly, this, this, this insane, frankly, idea where you can rebuild your house again and again and again with federal funds paid for by taxpayers. That is, to me, insane. And once you take that incentive away, a couple things will happen. One, you'll have very wealthy people who don't need insurance still choosing to live on the coast. That's fine, that's their own risk, right? But that's where you bring the communities into it and you start really bumping up federal dollars to truly buy people out at market value and into their home, it's their homestead. But oftentimes it, it's not just selling completely, like you can, selling completely, yes, but you can move, move in the same town, still create a sense of community. A couple of places have done this along river um, banks that flood a lot in Ohio. So I think I think there's there's a lever. I just think you really need a federal lever to, to really get this underway because it's very hard for people to leave their home, particularly a gorgeous home on the beach. I agree with that, but the increase in hurricanes um, is really serious. Um, and if people didn't see that last summer, I fear we're about to get another example of it. I'm sa I'm sorry to say because it's. Um, it's getting worse and worse. Yeah, I'd love to get just a quick round robin from all of you about these um, new plantings in Somerville. Somerville doing something different that uh, they believe is the first of its kind kind of situation. What do you think, Cobble? 
Well, I have had the pleasure of uh, meeting and, and talking with Green and Open Somerville, and I can tell you that they are a voice force to be reckoned with. They have done some really wonderful things in Somerville. They have been coming up with all of these interesting ways to sustain biodiversity and ecosystems, and I really applaud this effort. And I also just want to say that in the climate club at the uh, high school in the town that I live in, they are also working to try to get the town to adopt native plants as a mandate. And there are several bills in the legislature that are also addressing this issue. So it is, it's a—it's on the cusp, I feel like, of coming like a mainstream conversation. And I applaud Green and Open Somerville for what they've done. Beth, it seems like that would, this would be normal, but I guess it's unusual, as we've seen. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's. Um, I think it's fantastic. I mean, native species is the way to go. I, I'm always reminded of the Norway maple story. Um, it was uh, it was introduced uh, back in 1756 from England, and uh, soon made its way across farms and towns. And it was known for its shade and hardiness and adaptability. But it's super invasive, um, and it's not something that should be on our streets. Um, it, it displaces everything underneath it, it's hard to grow other things. And that's sort of a warning in some ways. Um, although some people really like it, that uh, we need to get back to our origins of what was here in the beginning. And I think the fact that it's on city-owned land, Dr. Bernstein uh, suggests, again, um, support for looking at homegrown, literally, uh, ways to address some of these issues. What I love about this legislation is that it, it, it's not only thought through clear. I mean, if you look at it, they don't just say, let's plant native. They fully acknowledge that climate change is making it hard for things that are native in New England to survive in New England today. We need experimentation. We need communities to step forward and say, we're going to try this. And these incubators of democracy can give us beacons of light to guide us forward. We're going to fix climate change through the ingenuity and and nimbleness of towns like Somerville and businesses that are small and medium sized. And this is a really good example of a community saying, you know, the world is changing. We see opportunities to do things differently. We're going to work together. We're going to look at science and we're going to do something and we're going to see what happens. And, and I just think it's in that way to me, it was so inspiring. Well, I think that's a good place to leave our conversation today. I thank you all for joining me. Thank you so much. Always good to be here. Thanks for having us. Beth Daly is editor and general manager of The Conversation U.S. Cabell Eames is the legislative manager at the Better Future Project, a Massachusetts-based grassroots climate action organization. And Dr. Aaron Bernstein is the interim director of the Center for Climate, Health, and the Global Environment at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health a pediatrician at Boston Children's Hospital, and an assistant professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. Coming up, last summer's racial reckoning sparked by the murder of George Floyd was a wake-up call for white Americans and a traumatizing event for black Americans. Make that re-traumatizing as young African Americans especially are continuing to grapple with the cycle of ongoing shooting deaths of people of color, including a recent teen victim. Is this charged environment leading to increasing rates of suicides among young African-Americans? That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley.